welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I am an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. It is my honor to co-host this podcast with Dr. Ryan Shields, an associate professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. An honor. Wow, I do feel honored. Yeah, episode three, we've really stepped up the game, (laughs) Ryan. I do want to point out, we failed to mention this in the first two episodes, but we have new intro music on the Breakpoint podcast, thanks to one of our own SIDP members, Steve Smoke, who graciously offered his music for our use. And so you guys should check him out. He has a SoundCloud, which is Steve underscore Smoke. It's definitely made us sound more professional when you listen back to these. So I love it. Thank you, Steve. I know. It's almost like we're a legit podcast people How about that? Who knew? And then also, if you're a board-certified infectious diseases pharmacist, don't forget you can get BCIDP credit for this podcast. So check that out, sidp.org backslash podcast. That's where you can find all of the CE information. You can also get ACPE credit as well. So any pharmacist listening can get CE. Okay, Ryan, I think I think that's it for our announcements and I think we're ready to go. All right. Well, let's dive in and kick off this episode with the session that was titled, We're Part of the Problem, How ID Killed Antibiotic Development. So this was a pretty provocative session. In fact, Helen Boucher was one of the moderators for this session, and she did a podcast um, right after the meeting and said that they chose this provocative title on purpose. So there was a lot of buzz around this session. Did it get your attention? It absolutely did, Aaron, and I think you're right. The meeting was talking about this session right after it happened, and it really that buzz carried through um, really till the meeting ended and thereafter. So the purpose of this entire session was to help raise awareness of where the antibiotic drug development pipeline is going. And I think it was kicked off very nicely by Dr. Chen Yu, who, uh, who really defined the problem of antibiotic drug development as an existential crisis for the specialty of infectious diseases, which I think is actually very true and alarming at the same time, because each of the new antibiotics that have been launched in the last decade or so have kind of landed with this commercial thud, as he put it, and really haven't taken off how we would want them to be. And there's many reasons for this, but he, I think, very nicely outlined, well, why has the commercial market failed? And there's four reasons that he gave that I think are important for our audience to understand. Reason number one is there's really no patient advocacy group for antibiotics for multidrug-resistant bacteria. In fact, if you survive pneumonia, you don't get a pink ribbon or a T-shirt that says, I survived pneumonia. And so this advocacy just kind of stops within the hospital and doesn't get extended to the public sector. Number two is the formulary process itself. ID prescribing is a culture that is now based on cost containment which unfortunately is not true for any other specialty. So new antibiotics, when they come to the market and they're expensive, this is something that is visible to antibiotic formularies and subcommittees, and this has really become much more about cost containment rather than perhaps doing the right thing for patients, something that I think we all appreciate but also understand the reasons for the cost containment. Number three is stewardship. And certainly we know stewardship, the goal is to give the right drug to the right patient and optimize patient outcomes. There's, of course, a cost component with stewardship as well. But I think extending this further, stewardship really needs to advocate for pricing that makes sense. And I'll give you some examples of, of where other companies have been successful in this. And number four, and this is a very important reason, and perhaps in my opinion the most important reason, is that the reimbursement structure for antibiotics is absolutely broken. 
the cost for high the cost for expensive antibiotics comes directly out of the DRG. So antibiotics put a huge pressure on stewardship programs and clinicians to not prescribe expensive antibiotics because they lose market when these drugs are written for rather than when they perhaps make a little bit of money when we use less expensive antibiotics. So the reimbursement structure for antibiotics is entirely broken. And to put this into perspective, we talk a lot about oncology drugs, and I think we're all jealous of all the new agents they get, how much money they spend on oncology drugs. And I don't want to rehash that argument again, because certainly we know the oncology market is a booming market, and you could argue the merits of what those drugs provide compared to antibiotics. So Dr. Yu finished his presentation. Well, what do we have to change? What is the purpose of this advocacy, and what is the call to arms? Well, number one, I think ID clinicians, including antimicrobial stewardship committees, have to regain control of prescribing. This was a really compelling session, and when I watched it, Dr. Yu had this quote that I loved, and he said, stewardship has become, frankly, an excuse not to optimize use of antibiotics, but instead to eliminate the use of novel antibiotics altogether. And that's sad, but unfortunately true. We need to change that mentality, that stewardship is getting the right patient on the right drug. And at least, gosh, Ryan, at our hospital, that means putting patients on these novel agents faster, right? Especially when you see the resistance that we see. So sometimes I, I spend most of my day escalating therapy and the best thing I can do for my patients is using these novel agents sooner and that is good stewardship. You hit the nail right on the head, Aaron, because what we have to do is we have to advocate for the best treatment and let the payers figure out the dollars and cents. Let them figure out the reimbursement structure. Our job as clinicians is to use the right treatment and the best treatment for our patients. I think the other things that have to change is this economic model that we've talked about. Again, the reimbursement for expensive antibiotics comes directly out of the DRG, and we have to learn about new ways to reinvent this process. So Dr. Yu mentioned the Disarm Act, as well as other changes that are happening. And the Disarm Act, to put this into perspective, is an act that's in front of Congress now that basically disassociates new antibiotics from the DRG. It provides a new mechanism of reimbursement outside of the DRG that perhaps helps hospital administrators justify the cost of these, and this is a very important piece of legislation that we'll talk about uh, later in this podcast as well. The third thing that absolutely has to change, and this is something that all of us can resonate with as clinicians, but we don't update guidelines regularly. And so if you don't think regular guidelines are important for how antibiotics are used, Take a look at a drug like fidaxomycin and its use before the new C. diff guidelines were released compared to after. The guidelines for Clostridium difficile have entirely driven the way that that drug is now used, and we're seeing much more uptake of fidaxomycin as a case example. Now, the other challenge is we don't have consensus guidelines for something like CRE or MDR gram-negative infections. There's some opinions out there, but not consensus statements. So not only do we need to update guidelines more regularly, but we need to develop guidelines for many of these difficult-to-treat pathogens, and I think that will go a long way in helping change this culture that will ultimately drive and reinvest in antibiotic development. So Aaron, there's lots going on, and the talk was largely uh, of all the problems. So perhaps can you give us some hope? What can we look out for on the horizon? Yes, I'd be happy to, because there definitely is some hope. And as provocative as that was, it's something we all need to hear. I I think that last piece about the guidelines is so important. I mean, hep C and HIV do this right. Their guidelines are online, publicly available, updated all the time. So people use the drugs. And if drugs aren't in the guidelines, clinicians can't prescribe them and use them. We can't recommend them, and payers don't pay for them. And so I think readily updating those things is important. 
Um, and so kind of on this note of hope, so Kevin Outerson, who's the executive director of CarbX, CarbX is a company that was established in July of 2016, and they invest in the development of new antibiotics. So they are visionaries. And so far, they've invested $155 million in 49 projects in seven countries. That's amazing. And so Kevin got up, and he's actually a lawyer, I, I guess, by back. He got up and kind of joked. He's like, so the lawyer's coming in at the end of this to shine the light. You know, um, it's bad when the lawyer gets involved, right? I know, but good. Thank you, Kevin, for coming up and telling us that there is hope. And he's like, you know, I see the preclinical pipeline for the world. We're funding companies all over the world. He said there's 307 something companies worldwide right now that are doing antibacterial preclinical work. So that's amazing. And he said he is aware at this moment that there are 417 projects worldwide. And overwhelmingly, these are small companies of 45 people or less. Um, And he actually called them heroic individuals, and he said they are worthy of our support. And then furthermore, and this is my favorite part, he goes, you know what, guys? The science is truly remarkable. The preclinical pipeline is just filled with interesting products, interesting projects. They're worth us investing in. And so the problem is not the science and infectious diseases. The problem is the economics. And so how can we fix that? So other hope, you mentioned this, I'll be very brief, but so the U.S. government is trying to lead this response, and so that is good. So you mentioned the Disarm Act in Congress. The CMS final rule just went into place supporting stewardship programs. They note this didn't specifically, this rule does not address the reimbursement model, but they're aware of it. So this is on people's radars to start to change this. Um, We're putting push incentives into place, and so hopefully we will see some change in the future. Yeah, Aaron. So I think these kinds of sessions are provocative. They're enlightening because they educate attendees and hopefully we're educating people listening to this podcast now. Um, But you and I are action people. So we want to know what can we do to help make a difference. And so for people listening to this podcast, the most important thing you can do right now, pause this podcast and go to www.idsociety.org backslash action on disarm. This takes you to a link where you can email directly your local representative to help support the Disarm Act. Again, to remind you, the Disarm Act takes away takes antibiotics out of the DRG and provides a new model for reimbursement for them. This is the most important piece of legislation that helps with antibiotic development and commercialization, and every single voice counts. The second thing you can do is advocate at your local hospital for prioritizing the best treatment for patients over cost. This is a battle we all fight in stewardship. We all battle with our hospital administrators, but it is so important, not just for patients. These new drugs save lives. We're going to talk about data along those lines in just a second. But if we don't use the new agents as they've been intended to use, we will lose them. The third thing we can do is continue to report your clinical experience. We know that doing randomized controlled trials on multidrug-resistant pathogens is very difficult to do. So as clinicians, we rely on this real-world experience to ultimately inform how we can use these agents, and every single report that comes out helps move that bar a little bit more. So I want to transition now into some of the new science that was presented at ID Week and some really interesting abstracts along these lines, along the lines of utilizing new novel agents for resistant gram-negative pathogens that are better than what we were doing previously. So I'll start with abstract number 2246, and this was presented by two SIDP members, Jovan Borgen and Sam Aiken from MD Anderson, where they compared the use of ceftazidime avibactam versus polymyxin-based treatment for CRE bacteremia among patients at cancer centers, among cancer patients, I should say. 
Now, they included 43 patients in their study, 24 of which received ceftazidime avibactam, and the other 19 patients received polymyxin B-based treatment. But what's interesting in the way they did their analysis is they used a desirability of outcome ranking or a DOOR analysis where they not only looked at clinical cure, but clinical cure among patients that were able to go home or if they remain hospitalized or if they developed acute kidney injury. And then, of course, the final bucket in this ordinal ranking is in hospital death. And so not surprisingly, they've shown what other studies have shown, that that ceftazidime avibactam was associated with a 58% improved patient-centered outcome compared to polymyxin B. These are huge differences. But what's noteworthy and important about this work from MD Anderson is that actually only 25% of the cases um, were from patients infected by carbapenemase-producing bacteria. So we talk about CRE, and we often associate CRE with KPC, but actually most of these patients didn't have carbapenemase-producing bacteria, so these are non-carbapenemase-producing CRE outcome data that we haven't had previously. So very important. The next abstract I want to highlight is along the same lines. This is abstract 2262 from New York Presbyterian. The ID pharmacist there, Jamie John, presented this work. And this is titled Ceftazidime avibactam versus polymyxin B, again, for the treatment of infections due to CRE. Now, this study was a retrospective cohort study at New York Presbyterian in Columbia, where they included 42 patients that received ceftazidime avibactam and 75 patients receiving polymyxin B-based treatment for at least 48 hours. Their primary endpoint was all-cause mortality at at 30 days. And interestingly, what they showed in this retrospective cohort is there was no difference between ceftazidime avibactam and polymyxin B in terms of all-cause mortality at 30 days. The mortality rates were 21% for ceftazidime avibactam and 25% for polymyxin B. So they concluded, hey, maybe there's no mortality benefit with ceftazidime avibactam. But I encourage our audience to look a little bit deeper into this study because, in fact, rates of clinical cure were higher for ceftazidime avibactam, 74% versus 59% for polymyxin B, and not surprisingly, acute kidney injury was much more common for polymyxin B, 43% of patients, compared to ceftazidime avibactam, only 19% of patients. So to be honest with you, yes, in many small retrospective studies, there may not be an apparent mortality benefit. There's lots of biases with these kinds of studies, but we have to look deeper. Clinical outcomes are improved, and we see less toxicity. And perhaps in this study, what's different than many of the others, they focused on polymyxin B. There are certainly maybe pharmacokinetic advantages of polymyxin B over colistin, but these kinds of data have to be dug into deeper to understand the benefits of ceftazidime avibactam, which, again, in my mind, justify use of these novel agents with higher rates of cure and less toxicity. This was reinforced by another multicenter study presented at the meeting, presented by uh, Mike Satlin from Columbia University. He did a multicenter observational study at eight centers in New York and New Jersey. And this was all patients with CRE bacteremia, where his goal was to um, study the impact of rapid diagnostics and the introduction of ceftazidime avibactam on mortality among these patients. And this is abstract number 1826. Overall, this is one of the largest studies that we've seen of CRE bacteremia evaluating these new agents. They had 178 patients, all with bacteremia. But importantly, 20% of isolates in this study were actually meropenem susceptible. They were included because they were ertapenem resistant, which leads us to believe that a significant percentage of isolates in this study were non-carbapenemase producing. But jumping right to the results, what they found is that when Among 60 of the 178 patients that were tested by BioFire, a molecular PCR-based assay for positive blood cultures, 
They showed a lower mortality in patients tested by PCR compared to patients not tested by rapid diagnostics. And this would make sense. We can identify resistant pathogens sooner, and we can initiate treatment more rapidly. They also showed that patients who received monotherapy with ceftazidime evibactam had lower 30-day mortality rates, only 10%, compared to patients who received polymyxin B or aminoglycosides as monotherapy, where their mortality rate was 33%. Again, Dr. Satlin focused on monotherapy here to remove some of the confounders with combination therapy, but these data all reinforce, all three studies put together, ceftazidime evibactam is superior to colistin and polymyxin B for CRE infections. Brian, those were three great posters presented at ID Week and continue to add to this growing body of data of real-world experience with the novel agents. And, I mean, I, don't, I, I do know about you. I know you're sold. I'm completely sold, too. I don't see any reason why we would use a polymyxin now when we have the opportunity to use one of the newer agents, um, particularly the beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors. I'm intrigued by this last study out of the New York group, these eight centers over three years of data, because like you said, only some of their centers had rapid diagnostics, and so they tried to look at the impact of biofire technology. Or um, They used biofire, but any rapid diagnostic technology would be beneficial, of course. So it was only 60 patients, um, but that will be the next step is not only using these drugs, but using these drugs faster and showing even, you would think, the hypothesis would be even improved mortality outcomes with being able to rapidly detect the presence of these carbapenemase genes or they're not present, but phenotypically it's still carbapenem resistant. So what do we do with those? And I love these data coming out showing that non-carbapenemase producing isolates still benefit from these novel agents because if you really looked at our epi across the United States, non-carbapenemase producing CRE are more prevalent than carbapenemase producing. So this is more of our clinical issue. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And so you take the data on the whole. I think the message is very clear. And the next step is perhaps can we start using some of these agents in the empiric setting with rapid diagnostics to even optimize patient outcomes further. Be still my heart. All right. So let's move on to three other quick posters. And I want to highlight some other work from SIDP members. The next poster is abstract number 2254. This was presented by Sarah Jorgensen from Mike Ryback's group where they presented a multi-center retrospective observational study, again, of ceftazidime avibactam. But now they present, for the first time that I've seen, new data for ceftazidime avibactam against MDR pseudomonas infections. So in total, they had 51 patients treated with ceftazidime avibactam, predominantly respiratory tract infections, as you would guess, with pseudomonas. And overall, their clinical success rate was 67%, and 80% of patients survived at 30 days. So this is just a reminder that ceftazidime avibactam is not exclusively a CRE drug. It has utility for MDR pseudomonas, and you're starting to see some real-world use now. And this actually supports the recent CID paper from Jason Pogue and his multicenter study, where, again, they show ceftolazane tazobactam was superior to aminoglycoside or polymyxin-based treatment for MDR pseudomonas. So I think many of the same things we're learning about CRE with these new agents, we're ultimately going to learn the same story about MDR pseudomonas as well. The final two posters I want to highlight really get at one of the critical questions when all of these new agents come to the market, is it going to be better than the last agent that was before it? So we've had ceftazidime avibactam since 2015, but now we have another agent, meropenem-vabrobactam. So I think there's been a lot of interest in now starting to generate some real-world experience with meropenem-vabrobactam. And I want to highlight the work done by Renee Ackley and her colleagues at Atrium Health 
where they've looked at meropen- their use of meropenem vapor-bactam and compared their experience with this drug to ceftazidime vapor-bactam. And you can find this under abstract number 662. The title of this abstract is Recurrence of Infection and Emergence of Drug Resistance After Treatment with Meropenem Vapor-Bactam Compared to Ceftazidime Avibactam in CRE Infections. And to my knowledge, this is the largest real-world study that has compared these two agents. And in fact, it's really the only study that has done so, where they have 105 patients that were treated with Ceftazidime Avibactam and 26 patients treated with Meropenem Vapor-Bactam. And again, these are some of the first real-world outcomes data for Meropenem Vapor-Bactam So huge props to Renee Ackley and her group uh, at Atrium Health. Now, overall, when you look at the patient demographics in this study, the two groups, whether patients received ceftazavi or merovabor, were very similar. The only important difference is that 61% of patients that received ceftazidime-avibactam received it in combination compared to only 15% of patients that received merovabor in combination. So perhaps based on their experience, there's a stronger likelihood that meropenem vapor-bactam is used as monotherapy. Now, regardless of the combination scenario, they showed overall very similar rates of clinical cure and mortality at 30 days, as well as similar rates of recurrence of infection within 90 days. But one of the big questions is, well, will the emergence of resistance happen with Merovabor like we've seen with ceftazidime-avibactam? And what they showed across their 105 patients is actually the rate of ceftazav resistance was quite low, only 3%. But keep in mind, these are retrospective studies, and sometimes it's very difficult to ascribe resistance if you're not testing every single recurrent isolate. And we know based on retrospective data, we only have the data that's available in the medical record. So a baseline rate of 3% at least, but perhaps it could be higher. But interestingly, they showed that they had no cases of among the 26 patients that received meropenem vapor-bactam that developed resistance, perhaps one patient outside, outside of the study criteria, but that hasn't been validated up until this point. So overall, what the clinical data suggest is very similar clinical outcomes, ceftazavi versus merovabor. Now, Aaron, we also presented our early experience with meropenem vapor-bactam at the meeting um, from UPMC. This is abstract number 2247, and these are the first 20 patients that we've treated at our center with meropenem vapor-bactam for CRE infections. And I think one of the things that differentiates our experience with the data that we've seen from Tango 2, the randomized controlled trial with meropenem vapor-bactam, is that our patients are generally very critically ill. We had a median Apache 2 score of 19, and 70% of the patients in our case series were in the ICU at the time of infection. Now, analogous with our local epidemiology, these were all predominantly Klebsiella pneumonia infections, and 90% of those pathogens harbored KPC. Now, like Atrium Health, we showed that outcomes were quite similar to our experience with ceftazidime avibactam. In fact, our rates of 30-day survival and microbiologic failures were almost spot-on with ceftazidime avibactam. But again, these are small numbers, only 20 patients so far. But perhaps one of the more noteworthy findings from our initial experience with these 20 patients is that we did in see, indeed see the emergence of meropenem vapor-bactam non-susceptibility following treatment. This was a patient that was treated initially for a bacteremia, developed an intra-abdominal abscess, and the Klebsiella from that intra-abdominal abscess had a meropenem vapor-bactam MIC of 8. And so based on the CLSI breakpoint, this would be non-susceptible because the breakpoint we know is less than or equal to 4. We broke another drug, Ryan. Well, this is, uh, this is a byproduct of antibiotics against multidrug-resistant bacteria. I think this is an inevitable fate of all the antibiotics. And what's important now is we understand the mechanisms of resistance, how to potentially suppress resistance, and also how to identify resistance, something that we've been highlighted with the ceftazavi work thus far. 
Now, in this case, resistance was mediated by a porn mutation in the cell. Specifically, we saw an insertion sequence, an IS-5 insertion in the gene promoter of OMPK36, which is the gene responsible for making one of the major porins in Klebsiella and is also the main entry point for both meropenem and Weber-Bactam to get inside the cell. So by the presence of this insertion in the gene promoter, we know that the expression of the porins is significantly uh, ramped down. So you have fewer porins that are expressed in the outer membrane, and perhaps this is an important mechanism of resistance for meropenem vaporbactam moving forward, something that we'll certainly want to keep an eye on with further surveillance studies as the numbers get larger and larger. So I think the take-home messages from these six real-world studies that were presented at the meeting is that the new agents are certainly superior to what we're doing with older agents, but resistance is inevitable. We will see this with all the new agents eventually, and we have to monitor for that very carefully. And I think the big message in tying this together with how we open the podcast is we have to prioritize these new agents in our stewardship programs to make sure that we are using the best drugs for our patients. Absolutely. And even in light of all that data and hopefully bringing this data to a broader audience through this podcast will help, but getting people to use the right drug in the right patient at the right time is tough. And that is the goal of antimicrobial stewardship programs is to optimize antibiotic use. And that includes escalating therapy. But antibiotic prescribing is hard. And there was a whole session at ID Week about behavioral approaches to antibiotic stewardship. And I want to walk through the three presenters because they were all excellent. So the first was Dr. Mike Puglia. He works at the University of Wisconsin. He's an emergency medicine physician, and he's just interested in stewardship and does great work in that space. He taught me everything I know about emergency department stewardship. I think just such an untapped resource for improving patient care. But the other cool thing about the emergency department is the environment. So it's incredibly complex. Providers make more decisions per minute in the emergency department than anywhere else in healthcare. And so it's a great place to study humans and how they work and how they process. So he actually brought in human factors engineering consultants into the ED to watch how people make decisions and how they prescribe antibiotics. And he started his session off by saying, you know, we don't really talk about this in medicine very often. We don't think about healthcare from a design standpoint. And design was his buzzword for this session. We need to build better systems. We, we have this fundamental attribution error where in medicine we blame the individual provider and that's not fair. We have to understand human behavior and we have to design better systems so we can channel our behaviors into safe and productive environments. And honestly, this is kind of a side note, but this is the same error we make with burnout. When we talk about burnout, all we do is focus on how the individual needs to change and that's inaccurate. To, per- to fix burnout, you have to change the system. Um, so how can we change the system? Antibiotic prescribing takes place in a very complex system. You have to understand every element of that thought process and interaction in order to change. And he kind of broke it down further and said, you know, things can be easy or things can be hard. And what we want to do is we want to make them easy. And if you're trying to fix your system, what you have to do is start with an absolutely blank slate. So forget everything you think you know. Get rid of your fundamental attribution error about humans and what you think they're doing. We all have our own biases. You have to meet with a systems engineer and ask and have them ask why you do every single thing you do. So completely blank slate. Once you have the blank slate, then have these human factors engineers shadow each process and observe what goes on in patient care. Sit down and talk to your frontline providers. Your non-clinical staff should do this. So ideally, you'd have non-clinical people asking providers why they do what they do. Again, removing all biases about why you think they do what they do. And then start drawing up a design 
that helps you fix the processes. And any good design, good design is actually this entire discipline of study, which I learned. I never thought about this, but this whole process is pretty fascinating. And then as you have people kind of design what this process should look like and how you can help people optimize decision-making, then you roll it out as a pilot, test it in a small environment, and then evaluate that. And this might take going through this process time and time again. And this is where we kind of fail in stewardship because we roll out initiatives and we either don't take the time to evaluate them and then reinvent them and, and tweak them as needed for how humans work within that system, or we start with biases and we don't start with this blank slate of what would help people make decisions decisions the best. And so he actually used an example at the University of Wisconsin. They, they built an order set for ordering urine cultures to try to decrease treatment of asymptomatic bacteria. And that was like a two-year process with a lot of super users clicking buttons and deciding when and where these should be ordered, et cetera, and working with the EHR. Um, so that was just a very interesting session from Dr. Mike Puglia about design and stewardship behaviors. The next speaker was Dr. Sickens from Amsterdam, and he does work called Leveraging the IKEA Effect for Stewardship. So I think this kind of got people's ears up because it's just kind of an interesting title. We all love IKEA. Everyone loves IKEA. My I wife, the first time she visited Pittsburgh, as you know, there's an IKEA close to the airport. When she saw it for the first time, she screamed. I slammed on the brakes of my car. I'm like, oh, my God, what's going on? And she's like, oh, there's an IKEA. So it tells you people love <laughs> Ikea. People do love Ikea, and they love Jenna. Jenna's awesome. Ryan's <laughs> wife is awesome, in case anyone doesn't know. Um, but so Ikea. So do you know why people love Ikea? In fact, it is science, and we love science. So the Ikea effect is basically that labor leads to love. So you appreciate things more if you make them yourself. Sounds simple enough, right? That's why we love IKEA. There's like a bigger reward in doing something for yourself and building something yourself than just buying it. So how does this relate to stewardship? Long story short, if providers and end users of antimicrobial agents are engaged in the process, they are legit stakeholders, they work to develop guidelines, then maybe they love them more and maybe they change more. And so this whole session, he went through a couple of studies and some data. Um, his group has a study called the Dumas study. They studied that in two hospitals in Netherlands, and they tried to have antibiotic champions from each department that were involved in improving guidelines, improving prescribing, and showing that there is an impact and a difference in antibiotic prescribing. So um, I just thought that was really interesting, and I know people kind of love the title. So a catchy title and a good idea gets you pretty far. Absolutely. But of course, like we want to engage people in the work they're doing, right? So that makes a lot of sense. And then the last component of this behavioral approaches to antibiotic stewardship session is probably my favorite. And this is Dr. Sarah Parker from Children's of Colorado. She is the medical director of stewardship there. Um, she worked with Dr. Amanda Hurst, who is a pharmacist, and they started this concept of handshake stewardship. And they started this, I think, five years or more ago. So handshake stewardship, what is that? Well, they have no prior authorization. So none of their antibiotics are restricted, but they review every single patient in the hospital on antimicrobial agents every day. So no prior auth, very robust prospective audit and feedback. A physician and a pharmacist share this review process. So they have two separate lists that they built in their EHR. A physician reviews one list every day. A pharmacist reviews the other list. They review patients at 24 and 48 to 72 hours, and they go through interventions and recommendations. And then once they're done reviewing every patient, they go together and they walk around the hospital and they visit 22 different teams 
every day, whether they have an intervention or not. And they do this handshake concept where they communicate with primary teams and they discuss stewardship interventions. This concept has caught on. They do this at Vanderbilt. They do this at Children's of Wisconsin. And I know Jason Newland, who's a a stewardship physician in St. Louis, who's awesome, doing it at his hospital as well. Um, And it works. So they just published their five-year outcomes in CID. So these data were presented at ID Week. And they saw over five years a 25% decrease in all antimicrobial use. And that is a sustaining and significant impact on decreasing antibiotic exposure. And how you might think, like, that's impossible, that takes so long. Well, it's not really. And she actually broke down exactly their process. So from 8 to 9.30, they run these reports. It's about 58 patients a day. And, again, they have really robust dashboards, so information technology support is very helpful in stewardship. Then from 9.30 to 10, they do microbiology rounds every single day, and they discuss positive tests, infection prevention is present there, pharmacies present, micro, et cetera, um, and they go through the patients in that way, and then they can take that information up to the teams, possibly before it's even reported in the chart, and then from 10 to 11.30, they do their walk rounds. They track their interventions, and they have an 86% acceptance rate, and again, this is a lasting and sustainable impact, and in fact, um, they... So we see about 50 to 60% of patients admitted to the hospital get some kind of antibiotic. Over this time, not only did they decrease antibiotic use, but the likelihood of being admitted to their hospital and receiving any antibiotic decreased by 13%. And that saved their hospital almost $3 million over these five years. So handshake stewardship honestly seems just exceptional. Yeah, it's really remarkable, Erin. And I want to transition us now into a couple other areas where we have some data but there's still some equipoise on what we need to be doing as clinicians. And this is the very popular pro-con debates at ID Week. So up first on the pro-con debates is oral therapy for uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia. The pro side here was presented by Dr. Patty Wright from Vanderbilt University, and her arguments are pretty clear to most clinicians listening to this podcast, right? We understand the risks and costs associated with long-term IV catheters. Particularly, we know that there's complications that may manifest, and these patients stay in our hospital longer. So there's lots of incentives to get catheters out of people. And you can go back into the 1980s and 90s, and there's small Uh, small retrospective and even some prospective studies that were done among IV drug users where fluoroquinolones and rifampin were used successfully as oral therapy to spare IV lines among these IV drug users. But perhaps the best evidence was recently published last year in CID, and this is known as kind of the early switch study. This is a group of investigators in Spain where they conducted a prospective cohort study using a propensity-matched case control study design where patients were switched to oral linazolid between three to nine days after starting standard of care intravenous therapy, and they compared those patients, again matched on a propensity score, to patients who received exclusively IV therapy for staph aureus bacteremia. Now, caveat number one is that these were low-risk patients, which means they didn't have metastatic complications and they cleared their blood cultures and didn't have a prosthetic material. But in general, what they found is that 45 patients that were switched to oral linazolid, and most of these patients were switched after about a week of IV therapy, had very similar clinical responses, and in some cases better than patients that stayed on standard IV antibiotics. And there was 90 patients in that arm. Overall, they saw very low rates of, of bloodstream relapse, low rates of mortality, and in fact, perhaps a trend favoring oral antibiotics at the 30-day endpoint for mortality, but perhaps 
most importantly here, they showed that the length of stay for patients that were transitioned to oral antibiotics was eight days compared to 19 days for patients who stayed on IV antibiotics. So certainly we know perhaps there's uh, an important clinical benefit, but certainly we can get the patients out of the hospital sooner and avoid IV catheter complications. She also pointed out in the very infamous POET trial that Dr. Van Dyne presented to us in podcast number, episode number two, that if you look into the details of this study, that in fact there was about 40 patients in each arm of IV or oral therapy that had staph aureus endocarditis, particularly left-sided endocarditis, and those patients in the small subgroup seemed to do just fine if they had staph aureus. So debating her was Dr. Vance Fowler from Duke University. We know Dr. Fowler is a renowned expert in staph aureus bacteremia, and his con was really, well, first of all, we don't really have a consensus treatment on the best therapy for staph aureus bacteremia. As importantly, he said, uncomplicated staph bacteremia is actually very uncommon and hard to differentiate from complicated staph aureus bacteremia. And we know if you don't differentiate it, this is associated with very bad consequences. And we've all been trained, Aaron, as clinicians to know you just don't take staph aureus lightly. And I think that was part of Dr. Fowler's message here. His other message is it's really hard to find these potential candidates for oral therapy that might have uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia. And he gave the reference in clinical trials that try to enroll these patients, you generally have to screen about 30 patients with staph aureus bacteremia to find one that has what we would classify as uncomplicated disease. His final argument is that if you look at the surveillance data, and Duke has been doing a great job of tracking this over the last couple decades, is that we now see patients that are more complicated than we did 20 years ago. In general, we see more patients with staph aureus bacteremia that have prosthetic material. In fact, more than half of all the patients in their cohort had prosthetic devices at the time of staph aureus bacteremia. We see more transplant and immunosuppressed patients, more patients with diabetes, et cetera. So the population itself has become much more complicated. And because of that, we're seeing a greater severity of disease, more metastatic complications. And in fact, some of the postmortem data suggests that oftentimes, if you do an autopsy on every single patient, there are cases of missed endocarditis, spinal abscesses, et cetera. So his debate was, uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia is maybe not exactly what we think it is. So now we get to decide and do the verdict. And in my opinion, and I think it makes sense for the right patient in the right scenario, and admittedly, these patients may be uncommon in your hospital depending on your local patient population, but we now have this preponderance of evidence that suggests switching patients from IV to oral therapy makes a lot of sense, and there's a lot of benefits of doing that. So some specific criteria that I would propose to switch patients to oral therapy is number one is if follow-up blood cultures are negative on day two and you've documented clearance right away, I think that's an important criteria. These patients should also defervesce within 72 hours, have no evidence of metastatic complications, and ideally you've ruled out endocarditis by an echocardiogram. They have no prosthetic material and no contraindications in terms of being immunosuppressed or not able to absorb oral antibiotics. And finally, and perhaps as most importantly, is that the source of infection should be removed. The, that is, if the IV catheter is the source, that's removed. If it's an abscess, that's been drained. And if for patients that meet these criteria, I think absolutely they should be treated with oral antibiotics because we know there's a lot of benefit for that. The options that we have are oral linazolid, which we know has great bioavailability, particularly for MRSA, and dicloxacillin, which might be a nice narrow-spectrum penicillin that we can use for MSSA, 
But again, the message here is find the right, pa- right patients at your hospital and then transition them to oral antibiotics, and that's where we'll ultimately see a benefit. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Ryan, with these pro-con debates is that even if this is only one patient that you treat in two months, that's one patient that you saved going home on Mm -hmm. IV therapy. So it's important to consider these even if it is the minority of your population. Um, And we shouldn't take staph lightly, and people love staph aureus. And so the other debate we want to discuss was nafcillin versus cefazolin for MSSA. So this is an extremely hot topic right now. Um, And I also want to thank my friend David Ha, who helped me kind of co-take notes on this session and was kind of instrumental in putting together this part of the podcast. Um, Because this, I think we both watched this debate like three times in order to make sure we captured it all, because this comes up almost every single day on rounds, at least here at UPMC. So this debate started with Dr. Sarah Dornberg from UCSF. She started with the cefazolin argument. And she actually said, this was interesting, there's an emerging infectious network, infections network, listserv, the EIN that the IDSA runs. That went out earlier, and they published in CID in 2019 a survey on this topic, and they it was split in thirds. One-third said cefazolin, one-third said anti-staphylococcal penicillins, and one-third said, you know, I think they're the same. And so this is definitely a clinical controversy where we don't know the right answer, and practice varies pretty tremendously. The main argument against cefazolin is, are, are twofold. One, the inoculum effect, and then two, there's just less clinical data with using cefazolin secondary to concerns about number one. So what is the inoculum effect? The inoculum effect essentially means that as the bacteria inoculum increases, antimicrobial drugs become less effective. And so we determine MICs at a standard inoculum, which is 5 times 10 to the 5th organism, and some infections likely have a higher number of organisms than that at the site of infection, so particularly endocarditis. There's probably more than 5 times 10 to the 5th there. So in the lab, for isolates, when we increase the the inoculum of organism 100-fold, so we go from 10 to the 5th to 10 to the 7th, for some strains of some isolates, we see the MIC dramatically increase, and that would be what we call an inoculum effect. So cefazolin definitely displays an inoculum effect in vitro, but the question is, does this matter clinically? And so Dr. Dornberg's main points were that as of right now, we have 14 cohort studies and five meta-analyses that do not support improved clinical outcomes with anti-staphylococcal penicillins over cefazolin from an efficacy standpoint. Cefazolin also has a much better safety profile, so less nephrotoxicity, bone marrow suppression, and then you don't have the sodium load and the volume issues of infusing anti-staphylococcal penicillins. And then her last point was that, honestly, this might not even matter by the time a patient is put on beta-lactam monotherapy. They've already been given, you know, three, four days of vancomycin plus some gram-negative agent, most likely by the time you figure out it is MSSA and that you de-escalate. And so there's at least rabbit models that show that the bacteria inoculum is essentially negligible after this first three to four days of therapy if you have source control and whatnot. So, you know, does this inoculum effect even matter? We don't have any human models to show that, but that is a school of thought. So walking through these 14 cohort studies and five meta-analyses, the issue with all of these data are that they're observational. They include all comers of MSSA, so that's going to water down the patients you really care about. 
They've all received some kind of empirical treatment, as we mentioned above, that might make this inoculum effect a non-issue. And then they get clinician-driven definitive therapy, so there's no randomized trials. So these are extremely heterogeneous. There's confounding by indication. There's a loss-to-follow-up bias in almost all of them, prescriber bias, a lot of unmeasured confounders, like just general comorbidity and risk of death in general. The other thing I think we need to consider when we're having this cefazolin versus nafcillin debate is that really on, the inoculum effect only impacts about 20 to 30 percent of MSSA. I think the range is in reported studies is 13 to 57 percent of isolates, but on average 20 to 30 percent of MSSA. And on top of that, you actually, we really only care about penicillin resistant staph aureus, right? And so some staph aureus is going to be penicillin susceptible, and then this maybe matters even less because there's no beta-lactamase. So it's 20 to 30% of penicillin-resistant MSSA. So this is just not that, not overwhelmingly common. Um, and the inoculum effect in general just may be associated with sicker patients. There was one study they presented that found that metastatic cancer was a significant risk factor for having an inoculum effect. So this may just be kind of a surrogate marker too. So what we really want to know is, patients with MSSA endocarditis and a strain that exhibits the inoculum effect and get some kind of empirical therapy, what is the difference in cefazolin versus an antistaphylococcal penicillin in those patients? And honestly, Ryan, I just don't think that randomized controlled trial is possible. You would have to enroll so many patients over such a long period of time that I don't know that we will ever truly answer this question. And both debaters acknowledged that, that the patients we really care about it's really hard to find them and to get the power to answer this question. Yeah, I think clinically you're looking for such a small difference in terms of clinical outcomes that you need these huge studies. But it's hard to argue against the toxicity benefits of cefazolin. The study that we have that probably best addresses this question to date is by Lee and colleagues. It was published in CMI in February of 2018. This was a prospective observational cohort at 10 hospitals in South Korea. Patients in the study got about 3.5 days of empirical therapy first before they were received definitive therapy. They started with 480 patients with MSSA bacteremia, and they ended up after their exclusion criteria with 168 that received definitive nafcillin and 79 that received definitive cefazolin. So they propensity score matched them, so they had 79 in each group. Now, this is good because you make your patients similar, but the problem with propensity score matching is now we've lost our power essentially, right? So I have 79 patients in each group. We, they threw away over half of the nafcillin patients, so a lot of the patients that were sicker got excluded. And so these data, while they're our best data, we still have to take them with a grain of salt. They did find that three-month mortality was lower in the cefazolin group, um, and there was increased drug discontinuation due to adverse events in the nafcillin group. So cefazolin does seem to be safer. But again, it's kind of hard to make claims on these outcomes. What's great about this study, though, is they evaluated which isolates actually had the inoculum effect. So 22% of 110 MSSA isolates that were studied that they had data on were positive for the inoculum effect. This broke down to 11 patients in the nafcillin group and 13 patients in the cefazolin group. And so they found no differences. But again, these are incredibly small numbers. And I will point out that one and three month combined mortality was 9% in the nafcillin group, which was one patient, and 15% in the cefazolin group, or two patients. I mean, so who knows? But what was astounding that stood out was that the inoculum effect itself, regardless of treatment group, had an odds ratio of six for one month mortality. So it 
it suggests that the inoculum effect is indeed clinically relevant, but it may just be a general higher marker of mortality, really regardless of your definitive therapy. So on the flip then for the nafcillin side, um, Dr. Um, Nanini from Argentina present and his group has done a ton of work with this because they don't have anti-staphylococcal penicillins in Argentina. So those patients do get treated with cephalosporins as first-line agents. And so he actually started with this case of MSSA endocarditis where a patient had persistent bacteremia. They were treated with cefazolin and the MIC from day one to day seven of this persistent bacteremia went from 0.5 to 16. So this is in fact in real clinical patients and this isolate was a type C beta-lactamase producer. So he's like the inoculum effect is not just an in vitro phenomenon. We see this in our patients. He also pointed out a paper that was published in JAC in 2019 by Lenhard and Zachary. It's called Inoculum Effect of Beta-Lactam Antibiotics. Great paper if you want to read and get an overview of this topic. But the high points are that the inoculum effect is not just a single mechanism. Beta-lactamase production is probably the most prevalent and, and relevant aspect of resistance and inoculum effect, but there's a multitude of interrelated mechanisms, and that includes the burden of organism, the fact that antimicrobials interact with, as the burden increases, antimicrobials that are interacting with the cell will decrease, specific penicillin binding protein expression may decrease, subpopulations of pre-existing resistant bacteria may increase, and so there's a lot going on. This inoculum effect is a very dynamic process and on that note, we don't have a right definition for inoculum effect. Is it just the isolate becomes resistant? Is it a certain times fold increase in the MIC? There's no real standard definition. He did walk through the variants of staph beta-lactamases. So there's A, B, C, and D beta-lactamases in staph. They all have different affinities, and they hydrolyze different drugs differently. So this is a really complex issue, just as we see in the gram-negative space. Type A beta-lactamases and then to some degree type C are the ones that really show an inoculum effect to cefazolin, so that's what we'd have to watch out for. Other cephalosporins like cefuroxime, ceftriaxone, cefepime, ceftariline, they seem to be more stable against staphylococcal penicillinases, and so perhaps they'd be less susceptible to this inoculum effect, and we may see better outcomes there. But again, this is a small percentage of patients that actually have the inoculum effect. And the ideal situation would be that we'd be able to test this and know in our patients. But that's, Ryan, I think, as you know, that's pretty hard to do, to do broth on these isolates in real-time clinical setting. Yeah, I think anytime you get outside of the standard operating procedure in the microbiology lab, this just adds layers of complexity that the labs just really aren't well-equipped to test. And so it tells me that perhaps we need a molecular marker of inoculum effect, and I know that there's lots of investigations along those lines as well, which might be a role moving forward. Yeah, when I first started at, at <clears throat> University of Pittsburgh, I actually asked Ryan if we could do this in all of our MSSA patients, and he kind of just laughed at me and was like, you can go do all the broth in the lab and spend four hours per patient. So not a real good solution to this yet, but the concluding argument was from a CID editorial in 2017, um, and this editorial basically stated that 
Although, bac- although high bacterial load infections caused by MSSA with inoculum effect phenotype may be infrequent, it seems prudent to consider antistaphylococcal penicillins the therapy of choice and that a prospective study is needed. So I already said it's going to be really hard to get the number needed in a study to actually show what we're looking for here. But there is this CLOCEBA, so C-L-O-C-E-B-A study. It's a French group. It's an ongoing randomized trial comparing cloxacillin versus cefazolin. So I guess we will see. At the end of the day, it seems like the inoculum effect is clinically relevant. It's hard to figure out which patients actually have it. Cefazolin is definitely safer than nafcillin. Um, and so I think jury's still out overall, though, on the optimal treatment for these patients. Very interesting, Erin. And I'm going to actually do something off script here and, uh, and jump to a poster that I saw at the meeting. I was going to talk about later, but I think now is the perfect time to talk about abstract number 217 or 217. This is from George Sekoulis's group where they were interested in this very phenomena, right? Because you talked a lot about the inoculum effect, and we know one of the clinical manifestations of that is persistent bacteremia in our patients. And you and I have had this conversation clinically all the time. Well, what do we do for patients that are persistently bacteremic on cefazolin? You switch them to nafcillin, you get stuck. Are there combinations perhaps that help get you a synergistic effect and help patients clear their blood cultures? So Dr. Sekoulis has been working on this for several years now, and he presented a very important abstract at the meeting where they showed 11 consecutive patients that had persistent MSSA bacteremia, six of which had endocarditis, and they had all failed monotherapy with either cefazolin or nafcillin, so persistently bacteremic on those agents. All of the patients, they switched to cefazolin in combination with ertapenem. And the hypothesis here is that the combination of cefazolin and ertapenem may sensitize the pathogen to the innate immune system and help overcome this potential inoculum effect that has an impact on patient outcomes. So among these 11 patients, what they saw is that nine patients at the time of the switch to antibiotic combination had persistently positive blood cultures. Within 24 hours of switching them to ertapenem and cefazolin, eight of the nine cleared their blood cultures, again, within 24 hours. Now, the clinical data are nice, but it's 11 patients. So the other part of the abstract that I I found particularly compelling is they also showed in a rat endocarditis model that the effects of the combination were significantly superior to either cefazolin or ertapenem individually, and they did this by showing the amount of organisms still present in the vegetation in this rat endocarditis model, showing significant reductions in overall bacterial burden when you put the two drugs together. So perhaps when we're talking about MSSA and the inoculum effect, and then there are these few patients which we do see persistent bacteremia, the combination of ertapenem and cefazolin together might be something that we now consider and something certainly that will merit future investigation in other clinical trials. What do you think, Erin? You see these patients. Yes, Ryan. I think persistent MSSA is not something we talk about enough because we talk about MRSA all the time, but we do see these patients and they're extremely difficult to treat because we kind of run out of options and we're trying to think of any random combination that might work. So those are important data. There was another pro-con debate that gets into this MSSA, MRSA. We're doing a lot of staph aureus in this segment. Um, but this, I want to give a shout-out to our infection prevention colleagues and all of the content at ID Week about infection prevention. But MSSA, MRSA, and so this pro-con debate was 
applying contact precautions, what's the best approach to reduce transmission? And it was, should we focus on all Staph aureus or just MRSA? So the first speaker was Dr. Martin Evans. He is the director of the MRSA MDRO program for the VA in the United States. And he said that prevention efforts should focus on MRSA. And his argument was essentially that it's associated with more cost and worse outcomes than MSSA. And that if you have an MRSA, if you're colonized with MRSA, your risk of developing an MRSA infection is 25%. But if you're colonized with MSSA, your risk is only about 4%. And so the VA led this huge initiative to reduce MRSA through a bundled approach where they focused on the R. Um, They dedicated $32 million per year over eight years at this effort to reduce MRSA, and it really is an incredible initiative. And their bundle essentially looked at active surveillance and universal screening for MRSA, contact precautions for infected patients or colonized patients, an emphasis on hand hygiene, and then an institutional cultural transformation, really, where infection prevention became everyone's business and everyone had a part in this, not just the infection prevention team. And they saw a significant reduction in MRSA infections. And why did they just do MRSA? There was a simple PCR to assess for it. And then quite honestly, we just don't have the resources to deal with all staph aureus. And so they focused on the more important pathogen because those patients have higher morbidity, higher mortality, and higher associated costs. This project really got the whole VA engaged. And As a collateral benefit, which was very interesting, up to 30% of patients that had MDR gram-negative infections also had MRSA, and so they already were putting these patients into contact precautions, and so they actually saw, as a collateral benefit, a decrease in hospital-onset gram-negative bacteremia. And so that was the pro argument or the argument to say we should focus infection prevention solely on MRSA. The flip of this, which said we should focus on all staph aureus, um, was Dr. Stifel, who's the chief of infectious diseases at the Cleveland VA. And she actually laughed and started, and she said, you know, I work at the VA, and I focused a lot of my career and efforts on rolling out the MRSA initiative at the VA. So it was kind of a challenge for her to take the other stance, but that makes for a good debate when we really challenge ourselves to think of the other side. Absolutely. And she basically just said, you know, she actually called MSSA the redheaded stepchild of infection prevention. So I thought that was pretty funny. Um, And she said, you know, MSSA is underappreciated. It has steadily risen since 2007. 2007 was really the end of the peak of the community-acquired MRSA epidemic. And she said, you know what? Like, we talk about MRSA a lot. When this initiative rolled out, we had hospital-associated and community-acquired. She's like, now those lines are pretty blurred, and that distinction doesn't really exist anymore. MRSA has gone down and MSSA has gone up. Um, And she said that... MSSA can also be very virulent, and overall, her conclusions were that the epidemiology of Staph aureus as a pathogen in general has the potential to change the landscape of healthcare really in any given decade. And so, yes, the MRSA efforts were very valuable, but we have to be cognizant when we're thinking about infection prevention, and we can't just do what we've always done. We have to follow our local epidemiology and know what the current problems are. 
and not lose our efforts in other spaces. That was kind of her sense of we should focus on all patients and staph aureus is bad in general. That there is this huge connect between what's going on in the community and what's going on in the hospital. So we need to be agile. We need to be dynamic just as bugs are, right? We talked about how quickly they develop resistance. And bugs are just smarter than humans. And so we have to kind of stay on top of them as best we can. And so we wouldn't want to only focus on one and lose lose track of the other. Um, And then certain healthcare situations may actually even benefit to MSSA as well because MSSA may be a more predominant pathogen. And she showed some data with arthroplasty surgeries that MSSA is actually more morbid than MRSA in those subgroups. So you want to, you know, keep, keep your team all engaged. And so her message was pretty much like, don't rest on your laurels. We should be tracking everything if possible. The real elephant in the room, though, was do we even need contact precautions at all? And was everything else in the bundle the more the more beneficial? So hand hygiene, chlorhexidine bathing, catheter care, post-operative wound cares, environmental cleaning and disinfecting. Is this really what led to the reductions in MRSA? And can we get rid of contact precautions? And I know there's a lot of data emerging in that space, and I think that's going to be the pro-con debate next year. Yeah, I'd love to hear that because certainly this is a confounded conversation when you talk about all the interventions and what impact each one does individually. Okay, so let's wrap up the pro-con debates by talking about every antimicrobial steward's favorite drug class, the fluoroquinolones. And so at ID Week this year, there, of course, was a pro-con debate on whether this drug class should be abandoned altogether as a first-line agent for anything. And so taking the pro side was Jennifer Pisano from the University of Chicago. And really, the pro side needs no further evidence than what we've already seen in the conversations we have on almost a daily basis. We know of all the FDA warnings about toxicity, the collateral damage in association with resistance, and certainly something like Clostridium difficile, which catches hospital administrators' attention. She also made the point that we have alternative agents that are equally as efficacious and perhaps safer, and I think what has driven a lot of the fluoroquinolone use historically is this penicillin allergy thing, and as we know as clinicians, this is becoming easier and easier to clarify penicillin allergies and by byproduct to use less fluoroquinolones. So let me focus on the con debate. Why shouldn't we perhaps avoid fluoroquinolones as first-line agents? And Matthew Scarborough presented the con debate from the – he's from the United Kingdom, and he started his lecture by saying, okay, raise your hand if you're a prescriber in the audience. And of course, there was lots of hands going up. And he said, well, keep your hand up if you prescribed a fluoroquinolone in last year. And of course, everyone's hand stayed up. And then he said, okay, well, keep your hand up if you prescribed a fluoroquinolone within the last month. And again, everyone's hands stayed up. And it speaks to one of his important points that we are already voting in this pro-con debate by the way we're prescribing antibiotics is that this class is still used ubiquitously across medicine. And I I think his main take-home point is we, we have to embrace what's good about the class. We know that these are effective as oral antibiotics, they have excellent bioavailability. They have excellent tissue penetration, particularly to deep-seated sites of infection like the prostate and the bone, and they're extraordinarily cheap, contrary to many of the expensive antibiotics we've talked about in this podcast itself. The second point touched on the toxicity. Generally, these are well-tolerated for most patients. Most of the FDA warnings we know are happen very, um, very rarely. Things like tendon rupture, aortic aneurysm, retinal detachment, all these are profoundly serious adverse events. They occur at a very low frequency and are associated with other antibiotics as well. 
He also made the point about neuropathy. You know, the number needed to harm for patients receiving fluoroquinolones that develop neuropathy is one patient in 304,167. So again, it speaks to these are relatively rare uh, adverse events. So should the class be abandoned because of resistance, perhaps? Well, if you look at the spread of resistance, and he showed maps in Europe, which is very true in the United States as well, is that not only has resistance risen to the fluoroquinolones, but it's risen to the beta-lactams and aminoglycosides as well. And certainly nobody is having a conversation about stopping using the beta-lactams. So resistance is a byproduct that has been really a multi-class effect. So I think that the main take-home point is, well, where do these drugs still have utility? And he pointed to prostatitis, bone and joint infections, where these drugs have a huge advantage because they're small molecules, they penetrate biofilms very well, and they're active intracellularly, all of which are very true. I think the other main indication is their prophylaxis, particularly something like levofloxacin for febrile neutropenia, where the number needed to treat is one to save... Ah, I screwed that up. I think the other main indication is as prophylaxis for febrile neutropenia, where the number needed to treat to save one life is 29 patients that receive prophylaxis with levofloxacin that have febrile neutropenia. So certainly these drugs still have a lot of utility there. And then you could make the arguments about less common diseases like anthrax, where there's no question, really, you want to receive treatment with the fluoroquinolone. So the verdict, I think, in my opinion, Dr. Scarborough is right on the money. Even though the fluoroquinolones have got a bad rap and we love to avoid them at all costs as antimicrobial stewards, there's a right place and a right time for almost any antibiotic, and we have to embrace that. I think this is true with the fluoroquinolones, where there are certain indications like prostatitis, prophylaxis for febrile neutropenia, where these drugs really do have a utility. But I think at the same time, it's also very important to understand we don't need them as often as we once thought. And a lot of this is because we can now better clarify penicillin allergies, and we have newer antibiotics that are perhaps as well tolerated, if not better, and perhaps safer for our patients. Yeah, Ryan, I must say I I don't hate fluoroquinolones. I absolutely agree that they have their role. They are good drugs for certain infections. And so just knowing the benefit and risk in each patient is is our job to continually optimize antibiotic use. And I think these pro-con debates have shown us that that isn't always easy. And there are so many gray areas in medicine still, so many places where there's not necessarily one right answer, which is what makes infectious diseases so fun. And I think really the value of these meetings is having these discussions when, you know what, there's not a right answer. Let's get all the experts and newcomers on stage to discuss these data. There was one last session I want to mention where I saw this come together, and the session title was called Transplant ID Phone a Friend. And it was truly walking through very complex cases in the transplant infectious diseases space with drug-resistant CMV, very complex fungal infections, and it was world experts all over getting up and talking about these cases and how they legitimately had to call their colleagues and discuss options, and sometimes there were no options, and what do we do with these patients? And so that's why we're all here, to meet each other, share these data, and pool our collective thoughts to have respective disagreements and and come up with the best decisions for our patients. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Aaron. And on that note, I think let's wrap up episode number three here today. Just as a reminder, everyone can get CE credit, either BCIDP credit or ACPE credit for listening to these podcasts, and you can do so by visiting the SIDP.org website for more information on that. So to wrap up episode three, thanks, Aaron, for all the useful information, and thanks to our audience for your active participation. <laughs>